Everyone, welcome to you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen, and um, I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with us this morning. Just a few quick things before I tuck into that. Um, Sean's just prayed for the offering, and listen, every single time that we're generous, we enable ministry in so many ways. And one of the things that we asked you to kind of do over and above your normal giving is um, our KZN flood relief. And over the last few weeks, so many of you have been so generous, and we as a church have given just shy of 30,000 rand towards the KZN flood relief. So I think we can give a round of applause for that. That fund is now closed, um, so just keep in, just, just be aware of that. And if I can ask those of you who are giving online, and it's obviously the, the safer and for many of us the easier way to go about things, uh, please won't you do me a favor and check your references. Just sometimes we see something going in and it really seems like it is applying to something historic and we will still apply to that because that's what we need to do for good financial management. But we just suspect that some of us are maybe using some old references references there. On the Connect course tonight, if you register via sort of our online things today, we probably won't know about it. So come and speak to me personally, because it's at my place. I want to make sure there's a spot for you, and I can also give you our address. And um, baptism, if any of you are like even want a little bit of uh, insight into that, go to our YouTube channel, Riverside Community SA. Riverside Community SA, and if you look around our video library there, we've got a little 10-minute explainer video on baptism, just to give you a bit of a preview so that when you come over to the baptism course, you've got an idea of what you're walking into. And then finally, uh, welcome back to Craig and Inez Wilcock. For those of you who've kind of joined recently, Craig is another one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, they've had a much-needed sabbatical, and it sounds like you guys have had such an amazing, restful time, and so we're so glad for that, but we're also glad to have you back, so welcome back. All right, so I hope that every single one of you has read The Lord of the Rings, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Yes, absolutely. And if you haven't, please tell me that in your lifetime, you will read Lord of the Rings on multiple occasions. <laughs> okay, okay. As a concession, if reading really isn't your thing, these movies happen to be pretty close to the book. So I think you can do that. You know, my son started reading The Hobbit this last week and I almost started crying just because, listen, I know what's, what's coming his way and I know uh, the world is going to open up to him. And arguably, if you had to read one book apart from the Bible, I would almost say read Lord of the Rings. Now here's Part of the reason why, not only is it probably the standard for, for fantasy novels, but for those of you who don't know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the book, he was an incredibly thoughtful Christian. And if you read The Lord of the Rings, it doesn't scream Christian novel, but J.R.R. Tolkien skillfully weaves the Christian worldview into the story, which is probably why the story is so compelling. And so if you know what you're looking for and you're able to get into his mind, the Christian worldview is all over the Lord of the Rings. 
Now, in The Lord of the Rings, we meet a whole lot of interesting characters, but probably the most tragic character is the character of Gollum. And when we first meet Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, he's this weird, twisted, evil little character that we know there's something desperately wrong with him, but we just don't know what he is. What is he? What kind of creature is he? But what starts to be revealed to us is that whatever he is now, he wasn't always that. In fact, he used to be a happy, friendly hobbit by the name of Smeagol. And he lived in a normal hobbit world, and he had a normal hobbit life with very normal hobbit happy friends. Until the day came when he took hold of the one ring. In fact, he did it by killing his friend. And another way of saying that might be, this was the day that the one ring took hold of him. This ring, he becomes so infatuated with this ring that he abandons everything that he holds dear. His friends, his life, even his safety. This ring develops a power over him. There's that one scene, and I'm actually going to try and kind of do a little golem thing here. But he goes, we want it. We need it. My precious. Okay, that's the best I've got. Anyway, what is so sad about Gollum is that he gets the precious, but it strips away all of the things in his life that are truly precious to him. And I've got no doubt that the story we read today framed J.R.R. Tolkien's understanding of life and faith and when things can go wrong. And as J.R.R. Tolkien has this understanding of sin and evil and idolatry in our lives, once again, largely shaped by today's story, I have no doubts that as he creates this character and the power of the wandering over his life, today's story had a large part of that understanding. So for those of us who are joining us, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and I'm not even going to try a recap. All of our sermons are available on our app and on our YouTube channel. But just to catch us up with where we are, where, what scene are we looking at, and I want you to use your imagination. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been through all the plagues. They've been through the wilderness for the first time anyway. They're now camped at the mountain, the famous Mount Sinai. And just in your mind's eye, picture this. Moses has walked through the fire cloud, the fire cloud, And he's at the top of the mountain in God's presence. He's experiencing God's presence in a highly concentrated way. God is revealing himself, his will. He is giving Moses his law. And then the camera pans down. While Moses is up here with God, getting the law of God, what's happening in the Israelite camp? And that's where we get Exodus chapter 32. So read with me. We're going to read the first six verses together. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses, you brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The last time these people saw Moses, they saw him go up this mountain into this fiery presence of God. And I, I kind of keep on saying this. I know we are very quick to judge these silly Israelites. But listen, if you, know, if you knew you had some friends who were going into the Drakensberg, how long would you wait before you started getting worried? So understandably, Moses has gone up. And they're even saying, we don't know what has happened to Moses. On what day, I don't know exactly, but probably several weeks later. Now here's how I wish the story followed. I wish they said, listen, we don't know where Moses is. Aaron, just keep us on mission. Joshua, you were up on the mountain with Moses. You've somehow seen God Lead us forward. You elders, you, t you team who are part of Moses' leadership, why don't you continue taking us in the direction that Moses was doing that? But that's not what happened. What happened was, kind of like you see in the movies or in some of your teenage years, mom and dad are out for a few days. House party! Right? The first thing is they say, well, well, something's happened to Moses. Oh, well, he's gone, probably with his God. So now we need some new gods. And we're going to take the gold that we've got, and we're literally going to carve a golden idol here. Now remember, these Israelites had been worshiping Egyptian deities for multiple generations, many of which have some bull-like or calf-like appearance. And Yahweh is kind of new on the scene for them. Yes, he redeemed them. Yes, he released them out of slavery. Yes, he showed that he is greater than these other gods. He is greater than Pharaoh. He showed his great and mighty power on a number of occasions. But he's still kind of new on the scene. So Moses is gone. We don't know what's going on there. So we're going to go back to what we know or some strange hybrid between Yahweh and the Egyptian gods, and we're going to worship this golden calf as the gods who brought us out of Egypt. Now, it is so important to just think back to the weeks that we've been through, and if you haven't worked with us, just go home and read the preceding chapters from Exodus 19 onwards. Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh, have just come into a covenant relationship. God has just said to them, I want you to be my treasured possession. Out of all of the nations of the earth, I want you to have my presence. I want you to know my blessing. 
And I haven't forgotten about the rest of the nations, but I want you to be the vehicle through which my blessing goes to the nations. And I want you to be the nation that represents the one true God to the world. And one of the ways you're gonna do that is I'm gonna show you in this context, in this day and age, I'm gonna show you how to live so that you represent me well to these nations. And that is the law. And every single time, by the way, Moses throughout all of these stories goes up and down the mountain about seven times. Every single time Moses comes to the people saying, this is what God says, are you in or out? And every single time they say, yes, we're in. We will do everything that God has said. We will obey His laws. It's kind of like when a husband and a wife come together and they make a covenant together and they say these vows. You are first. You are my treasured possession. And I'm gonna stick with you through sickness and in health, through rich and through poor. I'm gonna be with you. Israel and the God of Israel have just done that. And you know what they do here? Think about the laws that God gave Moses, just given Moses, just given Israel. A few weeks ago, we looked at the top 10, the first 10, the 10 commandments, what the scriptures call the 10 words of God. These are the commandments that kind of frame the moral framework and the religious framework for all the other laws. Anyone remember what the first two laws are? The top two of the top 10? The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first law. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, anything on earth, in the sky, and so on and so forth. And so what is the first thing these people do? They break the top two of the top 10. And then everything just devolves from there. Verse six says that they ate and drank and they got up to indulge in revelry, which is basically a PG way of saying that they got tanked and a whole lot of nasty stuff went down. Enough said, right? And I'm not even kidding. Going back to this idea of a marriage ceremony, this is kind of like husband and wife saying their vows to one another. They're so in love and they mean every single word. And then after the ceremony, the wife goes off to fix her hair and makeup and he's waiting with his watch on and he's saying, ah, she's taking too long and then running away with his ex-girlfriend. That is exactly what's going on here. So once again, we go, oh, you know, I can't believe these Israelites have done that. Because you know, if I was there, if I saw what they saw, if I saw God's power, if I was in slavery, and if I experienced the redemption of God, if I saw His presence, if I heard His booming voice coming down from that mountain, I would never do what they did. Problem is, just like the Israelites and just like Gollum, there is something within us. 
just like, I used this metaphor the other day, just like, you know, that trolley that is always going to the left. There is something inside of us every single time that moves away from a true and honest worship of our God and wanting to replace Him with something else. And just like the Israelites, We've experienced, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who aren't, we're so glad that you're here. But for those of us who are Christians, just like the Israelites, we've experienced God's saving power. We've seen His mighty hand. We've seen Him come through for us again and again and again. And yet, time and time again, we do this. And sometimes as quick as this, God does something amazing last week and this week, our hearts are reorientated towards something else. One of the books that I've really enjoyed over the last few years is by a a pastor, author, American pastor, author by the name of Scott Sauls. He wrote a book called Irresistible Faith with the subtitle, Becoming the Kind of Christian the World Can't Resist. If you're looking for something to read, get hold of this one. And then he's got a chapter called Savoring the Precious Christ. And in this, just to help us do some self-evaluation, lest we become guilty of exactly what these Israelites did, He asked some diagnostic questions. So allow these questions just to gently come your way and help you think about your own life. Number one, what do you think about most? What occupies your mind the most? Especially when your mind is kind of like in a relaxed state, where does your mind go? As you're trying to fall asleep, where does your mind go? First thing in the morning, where does your mind go? Take note of those things. Number two, what triggers your anxieties? What do you worry about most? What, if you had to lose control over it, would trouble you most? What, if you lost it, would rob you of the desire to face life or even to live? Question three, where do you go with these anxieties? When things feel like they're going wrong, which they often do. When we feel like we have lost control and we're feeling this anxiety grow up within us, how do we respond to those feelings and emotions? How do we push them down? Where do we go to self-medicate? Where do we go to take this feeling away from me? Number four, what gives you greatest joy? What, if you got it, are you convinced in your mind will make you ultimately happy? What gives you greatest contentment? And finally, question number five. Where are you willing to compromise? What parts of Scripture do you ignore? What parts of Scripture do you like, ah, I'm just going to pretend I never heard that one. What parts of your moral decisions do you give yourself a pass? And just ignoring what God might want for your life in that area. 
So I know that kind of felt like an uppercut, left hook, right hook, something to the eye. Just hold on to the answers to those questions. And as you hold on to those thoughts, I want you to think about how the solar system operates. The reason the solar system works is because the sun is at the center. And we've got some pretty big planets. I mean, if we had to try and explore planet Earth, it's going to take us multiple lifetimes to see all that planet Earth has to offer. And that's one of the smallest planets. We've got these gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter. And as big as these planets are, they are held in suspension because the sun is at the center. And so as you think about the answers to some of these questions, I just want to acknowledge that, of course, we're not thinking about Jesus every second of every day. We do live in this real world. We do have real responsibilities. We do have real challenges and real problems to solve, real anxieties, real concerns, real griefs, real joys, real pleasures. And so think about all of those real life experiences like those planets. And it is okay to have these joys and these pleasures and these concerns, but they only make sense. They're only held in equilibrium when the sun is at the center. Now our solar system would go terribly wrong if we had to try put another planet at the center. As big and as heavy as Jupiter is, it cannot cope with the job description of the sun. And in the same way, our joys and our griefs and our challenges cannot cope with being at the center of our life. And so thinking about these questions, it's not so much that, okay, first question, what am I thinking about all the time? But Stephen, life is busy. I've got real issues to think about at work. I've got real problems that I need to solve. And so when I go to sleep, and I'm not thinking about anybody in particular when I say this, but, you know, Stephen, you can't judge me for, because of my issues, I go to my happy place, which happens to be this beautiful mountain stream in these mountains with this clear running water and real live wild trout. Again, not, not thinking about anyone here. Does that mean that that's an idol in my life? The question is less about that. But are these thoughts so big, so at the center that your whole thought life revolves around these thoughts? And you believe that you can only have peace when you get that. With regards to the second question, man, we've just been through COVID and many of us are still experiencing the knock-on effects economically, financially, Politically, our, our world is in chaos. And so I've got so much to worry about. Are those idols in my lives? And so the question is not, do you have some anxieties? The question is, and for those of you who are doing our Bible read, read equip module, am I learning how to find joy despite my anxiety? Am I learning to bring my anxieties to God daily? Am I learning to trust Him and the question is, has anxiety started to define me? 
are my problems at the center of my existence? That is now when we've taken something on the side and we've replaced the sun with this thing. The question is not, well, I've got some things that I enjoy. I've got some buddies. I've got some hobbies. Once again, not thinking about anyone here in this room. I've got some steak that I love putting on the fire. Are you telling me I've got idols in my life? Well, is this about, do you have some joys in your life? And it's more about, have you become so convinced that life is not worth living unless you have those joys? And so on and so forth. I think you get the picture here. Guys, and you know what? When we ask and answer questions like this, I know in my heart, and I'm pretty sure in your heart, there's something in us that wants to go, no, that's not me. Everything in my life is in perfect balance. Jesus is at the center. I'm here, aren't I? Isn't that proof enough that the sun is in the rightful place? And you know what? We just need to be free enough to be able to do here. And I'm going to be the first to stick up my hand. The answer is guilty. Every single day, there is something in me that wants to replace the sun in its rightful place with something else. Another joy, another concern, another distraction, another pleasure. And I'm not finding my primary identity and my primary joy and my primary purpose in Jesus Christ. So let's go back to these Israelites. There's a kind of a parallel telling of these stories in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 to 16, this is what we read. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord, Yahweh, the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb, that's aka Mount Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. Why is God reminding them of this? Because of who God is. There is nothing you and I can see that is God. First of all, our eyes are created and designed perfectly by Him. And we've got these receptors in our eyes created and designed by Him. So I am a, cre a creature, a created being. Everything I look at, everything I'm looking at right now is a created being or a created thing. Even light itself, photons and waves, not gonna get into that debate, is created by God. So everything that I can see, including light itself, is created by God and therefore cannot be God, which means God himself, according to this verse, rightly so, logically so, cannot be seen. He can choose to appear in a way that my eyes can perceive, but that's a diminished version of who God fully is. And so the temptation will always be to settle for stuff I can see to settle for stuff I can experience and I can tangibly enjoy. 
And like the Israelites, suddenly, because I can see this, I find myself putting it at the center of my life. And everything else in my life orientating around this, which is idolatry. Now, logically, this is absolutely ludicrous. If we think about these Israelites, once again, created beings, creatures, taking an inanimate element known as gold, taken out of an inanimate substance called rocks, and then they had to make some decisions. How are we going to make this calf? We're going to melt it, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to take a hammer, take some tools, and we're going to make this calf, and then we're going to go, look what I have created. These are our gods. I mean, that's absolutely illogical. Except don't we do the same thing? As illogical as it is, this is what we do. These things, these, even these good things, good things like your husband, your wife, your family, your kids, those are good gifts from God, but they cannot bear the weight of being at the center of your life, but you can see it, you can experience the results of having them at the center. So there's something in us just drifts towards that. So where do we go to from here? Well, C.S. Lewis, he said this, God made us, he invented us as a man invents an engine and a car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is, his, that is why it is no, just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. What this is saying is, I believe on a daily basis, every single one of us needs to have a Copernican revolution where we realize only the sun can bear the weight of being the sun. What today is not about, but another mistake we often fall into is putting myself at the center of the solar system. But what we're talking about today is when we do that or we put our kids or our wives or our family, as big as they are and as important as they are, we put them at the center and on a daily basis, we need to recognize these are often good gifts from God. Or I've got some really big challenges here, but I cannot put it at the center of my life. I cannot be defined by my kids. I cannot be defined by my work. I cannot be defined by my failures. I cannot be defined by my stuff or my joys. Only God can bear the weight of being God. And that is something you and I need to fight in our hearts every single day. Thomas Chalmers, one of these just wise, wise dead guys. He wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he's saying is it's not good enough just to stop idolatry. 
It's not good enough simply to fight idolatry. It's not good enough simply to kill the idols in our lives. Because it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. I kill the idol of lust in my life and the idol of food pops up. And then I kill the idol of food in my life and the idol of self-improvement pops up. And then I kill the idol of self-improvement and then the negative idol of self-hatred pops up. And my whole life is defined by that. And so we need to do more than simply go around killing idols in our lives. I mean, if I had to give you a beaker, an empty beacon, I'm saying there's air in here, how do we get the air out? You can't just get the air out, you need to replace the air with something else. And so if I've got these weakened affections and joys and loves in my life that I'm somehow putting at the middle, I can't just stop that, I need to replace it with a greater joy, with a greater love. And in this case, with the only one who is capable of being at the center of our lives. And this is the power, the expulsive power of a greater affection. So yes, we must fight sin. We must fight idols. We must get rid of idols. We must name idols. The good things in our lives, we need to say, God, I thank you for my kids. I thank you for my family. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my job. But now I'm gonna remove them from the center of my life and put you there. We must do that daily. And some of the sins in our lives and wrongful thinking, we need to fight those. At Riverside here, we do the journey once or twice a year. And so many of you have experienced freedom from these idols by doing that. But if you can't just fight the idols, we need to have the expulsive power of the one true God in the middle, giving us true joy, giving us true purpose and life and meaning. I know what some of you are worried about. Stephen, are you saying it's kind of my wife or you? For example, if your spouse happens to be just a temptation for you to make them an idol in your life, and maybe you're not singing songs to them and worshiping them every morning, but you know they're at the center of your life. We're not saying, now we put Jesus there, and now you're going to ignore your wife because you're doing Bible study 15 hours a day. Or now you're going to make your kids walk to school and they must just you know, forage on the way home because you're praying. That's not what we're saying. If anything, and this is where we just realize how good a God our God is. If we move our kids from the center to the appropriate place, doesn't mean I'm going to love them less. When Jesus is at the center, it probably means I'm going to love them more. But now suddenly I'm loving them with a love that is being purified, with a love that is being filled with the love of the Father, where my own needs to be loved are being satisfied in God. And so I'm set free to be the parent in the relationship and love my kids like mad, but I'm not looking to them for my affirmation. And I'll love them with a wiser love as I'm transformed and a maturing love. 
Loving Jesus first instead of your wife doesn't mean loving her less, but loving her like Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, which arguably is loving her more and better and wiser and releasing her of the burden of being God to you. We become better bosses, better employees because Jesus is giving me all I need and I'm set free from the burden of being defined by my work and the ups and downs that comes with that. When my money takes a back seat to Jesus, my relationship to it becomes healthier. Why? Because I have it, it doesn't have me. And I can supply our needs and I can trust God daily. Lord, give me today my daily bread. And I recognize that I'm set free from these things and I hold them in an open hand because I'm not defined by its presence or its absence. And now I'm set free to make better decisions with my resources, set free to be generous, set free to be generous to the kingdom, to the poor, to make better decisions. Didn't Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. I wanna end off with a quote once again by Scott Sauls. He says, this will lead us to hold everything else loosely, no longer desperately tightening our grip. And yet when we loosen our grip on these things, our loving Jesus sometimes has a way of giving them all back to us and in an even greater, healthier measure than before. We don't give to get because now I'm using Jesus as my genie. I just put him in the, in the center and I go to him for what I need. And I trust that he is the one who has the power and the wisdom for my life. I don't know what God has been highlighting for you. I think a good starting point for every single one of us is to recognize just the daily battle that we face. And this is not to condemn you. This is to free you. So we can just say, yep, that's me. Okay, what next, Jesus? Let's not be ignorant about this. Let's recognize that tomorrow morning you're gonna face this very same battle in your heart. But what has God highlighted out of these many things for you tends to be the thing that you put at the center. And just like the precious and Gollum, I have seen that over time, the more I put work at the center of my life, as much as I love it in the short term, it destroys me in the long term. And look, I put my wife at the center. And who would blame me? She's wonderful. Except for when she disappoints me. Which, by the way, we will all do. But instead of disappointing me as a human being that is also walking towards God, my precious has let me down. And I'm wrecked. Maybe you are facing something that I won't fully understand, a, a challenge, a difficulty, some problems you need to solve. 
And if you're honest, your problems are now at the center of your life. Stephen, what else do I do? Do I just stop thinking about it? No, not at all. But just don't be defined by your problems. Once again, Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter four, go and read it for yourself. Put it into practice. So let's just take a moment. We're gonna close our eyes. I'm not gonna ask you to do anything beyond just track with me. What has God highlighted to you tends to be your kind of top three idols. Just between you and him, Lord, Reflect that back to him. Moment of truth, moment of honesty. Moment of repentance. Not because Jesus is standing outside with a stick wanting to beat you, but he wants more for you. He knows that anxiety is killing you. He knows this good thing that's become a God thing to you is gonna break you. And he knows there's more joy and peace in him that he wants for you than anything else can give you. And make a choice. Use your own words, but something along the lines of Jesus, I recognize that my heart is so prone to wonder, Lord. But right now I choose to put my problems, my anxieties, my joys, my hobbies, my family in its appropriate place. And I put you at the center. And Lord, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna wake up and do the same thing. And I know by the end of Monday, my heart would have wandered. So Tuesday morning, I'm gonna wake up and do the same thing. And Jesus, as people are in many ways just turning back to you, I pray that something in their heart would respond saying, yes. Jesus, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Jesus, I know that these other idols, even these good things, have let me down. And maybe for some of us, I'm even on that golem journey. And my idol is robbing me of peace and life, healthy relationships. So Jesus, I put you at the center. Holy Spirit, with, with something in our hearts, just experience this sense of coming home. This is right. This is where joy and life and meaning and purpose is. Peace. Found in you, Jesus. Would this be so much more than a theory, but something that starts to define our lives. So God, we respond, but we trust you with the real work that you're gonna be doing in our hearts this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week, a wonderful time.